Welcome back, everybody, to the Svengali podcast. My name is Ren X, and I'm joined by... Javier Montalongo. And we have Gregory Wilson with us today. How are you doing, Gregory? Uh, this is uh, GX in the house. <laughs> <laughs> My last name's Rehovit. Like, no one can pronounce it or spell it, so I just cut it off. It's not very marketable. Mine used to be Wilsonovitsky Knight. So I just uh, shortened it. Just call me G. G in the house. G in the house. Okay. <laughs> G-licious. How may, what's going on, gentlemen? Good to uh, hear your voices. Yeah, you as well. Yeah. So uh, let's great. just jump jump right into it. Uh, the first thing we'd like to talk about is just kind of give us an idea of who you are outside of magic, it's gonna be, you know, other hobbies, what have you done in your life, interesting things you like to think about, beliefs, any of that. Well, you mean just something that specific? <laughs> it's it's purposely vague. Uh, I don't want to <laughs> let you run with it. Oh, just ask me something more specific. Like, I guess maybe, I'll, here, I'll, I'll answer the question for you. Uh, sports. I grew up with tennis, surfing, and golf, and rowing. So mm-hmm. I was, uh, I used to uh, compete on a high level of tennis, used to teach tennis uh, for years. Uh, golf, I used to be much better than I am now because of uh, injuries. So let's see. Uh, surfing, been a passion forever, and it kind of, I love freaking, love freaking people out when I say I've been. I started surfing in 1968. Wow, wow. And I go 68. What <laughs> the huh? How old are you? <laughs> yeah, for real. And then rowing, I was uh, I was on a national um, rowing team. We, we were the only junior college in the country that had a rowing team, and we beat. Everybody, we were number one in the country. We beat Harvard, Yale, Cornell, Washington, UCLA, Berkeley, all of wow. all the big schools, all the um, uh, Ivy League schools, and it was uh, it was fun being what we called a giant killer. No kidding, man. Jeez. Yeah. So, wait, where'd you grow up? Grew up in San Diego in Point Loma. Moved to Newport Beach in 1981. Been here ever since. Okay. Oh, wow. So, did I'm, you go to college in San Diego? Um, no. Well, actually, no. I moved to San Jose for three years and I went to a college up there, De Anza College, which is right next to the Apple headquarters before it was Apple. Mm. So they've got a literal city up there now. It's, it's just and I went to Cupertino High. And that's where if you look on your iPhone or uh, iPad or anything else by Apple, you'll see Cupertino is the headquartered city city headquarters and what'd you uh, what'd you study in college i was an english major really communications minor so i should be like a lot better at this by now <laughs> <laughs> well you're much better than i am hey look i don't want to show off or anything but i am what i call a languager <laughs> what, what is a languager i don't know i made that up <laughs> It's even show off. You should probably have like the explanation ready. (laughs) I think that would be the opposite of showing off if I'm making it up as I go along. (laughs) It's the the con artist in you. Exactly. At least I'm honest about it. I'm honest about my dishonesty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which we're going to get into in a minute because I'm uh, it's kind of an interesting paradox. But uh, did you know that you wanted to do magic in college or is that kind of a completely different career path at that point? You know what? It's I didn't know I wanted to do it for a living, but I studied it so assiduously that if I look back at my old notes, 
from school, I had uh, magic notes on one side and the um, notes from that particular subject on the other side. And sometimes uh, the magic notes were more plentiful than the other. Because hmm. I used to invent uh, ideas back then um, uh, and presentations. So the presentations were actually informed by that particular class. It could have been English. It could have been oceanography. It could have been, you know, ecology. In fact, there was one particular trick I remember. The, uh, the, um, I did two tricks for college professors. One of them was uh, on Coriolis effect. And there was a trick in uh, Paul Harris's Las Vegas close-up 1978 called uh, Aerodynamic Dollar by Thomas Olenek. And it's a way of folding a bill origami style to look like a propeller blade. And I would have them convinced that it could spin uh, you know, uh, up like a helicopter, come back down again, hover just um, in a soft landing down to my hand. Well, what they didn't know was that um, when I put two quarters in there openly, put two quarters in there to give it some stability, they didn't know that I also secretly put in uh, a thumbtack. Mm -hmm. So I pretended oh. like I, I built the whole thing up, Coriolis effect, everything goes to the, uh, the right. Uh, and, and I was uh, based on the rotational effect of the Earth on the 23 and a half degree orbital axis of the polar Arctic region, built all this stuff up, all the things that the teacher had mentioned already. So he's already impressed that I knew all that stuff. And when I go to throw it, bam, it sticks to the ceiling. Wow, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> and I go, wow, I, I think that might have run out of gas or I don't understand the principle of Coriolis. Something's going on here. <laughs> and that's great brought, brought down the house and then there was another one i remember i created a presentation for the bounce no bounce ball which was um based on uh, newton's second law of motion that any object will remain in um motion unless interrupted by an outside force and so i would bounce it and catch it i said my hand is the outside force watch bounce catch my hands the outside force and i do the switch and I'd give it to the teacher and he'd bounce it. I'd go, something's going on here. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't remember all the follow-up lines, but I know Newton was turning over in his grave and he was freaking out because he didn't know I was a magician. Even back then, I knew, don't use the word magician. Don't say magic, magician, tricks, uh, illusion, none of that, because I would rather look like a mysterious stranger who does these weird things and a magician where I've got the secret and they don't. Mm. It's interesting like you bring that. that up. That's a topic we talk a lot about on here. We have at least, and also with like the stereotype of what a magician is. Yeah. I think people have preconceived notions. If they're older, they say uh, in a cheeky way, Hey, you got your, uh, you got your rabbit in your top hat. Hey, Hey, I go, uh, I think that was five centuries ago, but thanks for thanks for catching up. Yeah. And then uh, the you know people today would probably think I don't know birthday party clown. I'm not sure what goes to their mind, but that's why I much prefer. I don't call them tricks. I call them deceptions. I even call myself a deceptionist. I think that actually sounds a little corny. Corny. I've been calling myself a deceptionist probably since the mid '80s, something like that, and I stopped doing that. I actually it still might be on a website or or, or something. But uh, deception sounds so much more cool and hip and dangerous.
Yeah. Yeah, and it like piques that curiosity too. People don't really know what it is you do. Yeah, and they don't think of a deception as being something that can be entertaining. So that juxtaposition is even more fascinating when they are entertained because it comes out of nowhere and they're very surprised by it. Yeah, I've been playing with the idea of a psychological art of calling it that. I've been testing it out recently. It's gotten some interesting reactions. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about it, but uh, it's at least probably for the goal of curiosity. Probably for the last 15 years or more, probably 15, 20 years, I call myself a deception artist. So now they know it's supposed to be entertaining and uh, provocative at the same time. Mm. So that, uh, that also kind of brings us to another thing that we like to start out with because it helps kind of frame the, the rest of our conversation, which is what is art to you? Oh, I don't know if I put that much thought into it. I say it just an artist is uh, someone, I think art is a personal expression of who the person is based on their worldview of how they judge and interpret reality. And when you can gather a group of people that are like-minded and accept what you do, you've just created your own audience. Which, by the way, I think is why we shouldn't kowtow to an audience using terms like, hey, it gets a good reaction. Yeah, but does it fit your character? Doesn't matter, it gets a good reaction. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Seriously. Dude, you could fart in church. That's going to get a reaction. It might not be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well put, man. Seriously. Hey, it gets good reaction. Hey, I, I wouldn't do sponge balls if it saved my life. Yeah, but it gets good reaction. Yeah, yeah but would a con man character or, uh, you know, I'm a wannabe James Bond. Would he do that? Of course he wouldn't. Which brings up something else I find kind of fascinating, how actors know their character far more than magicians do. Magicians all think they're cool and hip and clever and uh, and uh, think they have, um, how can I put it, um, an above average appearance. Right. So if you look at, uh, um, you know, a casting call uh, for a typical audition, in Hollywood, and it said tall, dark, handsome, chiseled jaw, broad shoulders, and a full thick head of hair, uh, George Costanza types aren't showing up. <laughs> but conversely and interestingly, when you describe the George Costanza type, they all show up because they know who they are and they're unabashed about it, unabashed about it. They know who they are, they embrace it, and they get roles accordingly because not everybody can be you know, Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. Now, it's interesting also in magic that, you know, magicians have this cool, suave kind of thing. And, um, you know, they all think they're 007. Now, I know I'm James Bond, but all these other guys are so deluded. <laughs> 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 We've but seen you I, at work. <laughs> by the way, by the way, I, I've tried that in nightclubs. It doesn't work so well. You know, he goes up and he goes, my name's Bond, James Bond. And they 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 melt and uh, drop to their knees. For me, I go, my name is Wilson, Greg Wilson. They look at me, they go, chance, fat chance. <laughs> <laughs> way, no way. <laughs> off, buzz off. <laughs> so not quite the same. Not, that's, I'm, that's why I'm a wannabe. I'm yeah. a self-admitted wannabe, uh, fraudulent, secret, uh, secret source agent. How did that uh, character come to be? 
know. I don't know. I never, you know what? This is literally the first time I thought about it. Um, maybe, you know, just like anything, I think it just manifests over time where I think magic is inherently uh, secretive. And uh, we do things that are very spy-like, I guess. Yeah. Don't know. So was there like an evolution of, uh, or was it like one day you were just Gregory Wilson, next day want to be 007? Oh, you know, I, I don't even, I, I don't really push it that hard. It's just, it's just more of a, uh, you know, a, a persona on my, on my website, you know, the secret uh, That would be the secret <laughs> Don't worry. We'll get all, get to all the plugs later. You know, I actually wrote some stuff. Let me see if I can find this. How a magician is like a spy. Let's see how a magician is like a spy. I wrote this so long ago. I don't even know if I can find it. Nah, that's too bad. I remember one of them was they always they all wear black. Mm. Oh, they were fairly funny. Darn it. Oh, anyway, man, I, I wish I could have heard them. A spy. Wearing black is interesting. We uh we just had a conversation with uh, Lawrence Haas recently. He brought up the wearing black thing too. Yeah. Just, I wonder if there's something more to it. I haven't really. I don't really have like developed thoughts about the idea yet. But uh, the color black. I don't know. There's something interesting about it. Oh, I wish I remembered them. This is good. This is gonna nag me. So I'm gonna see if you're gonna hear pauses during this interview. It's because I'm gonna be looking for it. <laughs> no worries i can always edit out pauses later as well oh good <laughs> i do have an interesting spy trick though when uh -oh. you when you go up to a group of people it's really fun you uh you point out one guy who looks like he's the alpha male the guy who's the center of attention you go up you go i think i know you he goes what yeah definitely you're the guy goes, what are you talking about you're a spy aren't you he goes spy yeah you're definitely a spy so if there's like a, a group of five to to 10 guys you know at a at a corporate event i go you're definitely a spy and i go wait let me just be direct are you a spy he says no aha isn't that what a spy would say <laughs> <laughs> what's your favorite color what's that red i knew it what, what are you drinking there a, a white russian of course and i just berate the heck out of them and this is long before the russia collusion this is before the cold war completely thawed out in the 80s and i would have a, a little reel in my hand i go are you wearing a wire what are you talking about? And I put the reel under his tie with my right hand. My left hand would go on the other side of the tie and pull out the, you know, the reel, pull out the wire, and there would be a microphone on the end of it. And I'd go, aha! <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know what? Oh, sorry. No, it, it would reel back in. I'd put that away in my pocket. Then I'd pull out a pen, a pen knife, the kind where you open up and you literally see a knife. Yeah. And pretend to reach into his pocket and pull it out. And everyone thinks, obviously, this is my whole put pockets, how the put pocket stuff started in the 80s. <laughs> and then I'd reach in and I'd pull that out and go, what is this, one of those spy pens? And back then I had a fism flash. And oh. I've got better ways to do it now. And I go, oh, it's one of those little spy cameras. Aha, what else does it do? And I pull it apart and there's a knife. Oh, sure, it's for aggressive envelopes, I'm sure, huh? And I'd put that away. And then the very last thing, uh, oh, and then I would find microphones on everybody, little, little, uh, little bugs. 
okay, you're laughing. What is this on your lapel? Aha. And it looked like a little bug. And I'd false transfer, put that away, find it on another guy and another guy. And I'd lift <laughs> up my tie and there would be a bug that was already there all along. And I'd put all that away. And then the very last thing is I say, uh, there's got to be one thing that ties you to Russia. I know. Here, check that pocket, check that pocket, check that pocket. And he finally goes to the last pocket and it's a Russian passport. <laughs> Oh and man! And I go. I'll let you guys deal with him. <laughs> you, know, you, you know what'd be good is uh, uh, finishing it off. Also, like in the back of the card, I have like a uh, confabulation routine. There you go. Yeah. Make it an actual, uh, an actual effect above and beyond just finding stuff on him. And sometimes he'd be a corporate spy. So sometimes it was Russia. Sometimes it was corporate. Yeah. Do you do any of the uh, pickpocketing stuff outside of magic? Or have you? You mean as a real pickpocket? Uh, I mean, not necessarily even like stealing, but like just for fun. Like giving stuff back. You mean, do I perform, uh, do I do pickpocketing off off stage? Yeah, sort of like, I don't know what the best way to frame it, like a, when I, I'm not good at pickpocketing by any means, but uh, my primary use of it was just been like messing with friends. I don't ever do it with stage shows. I wonder if you had any interesting stories with that. Well, I, you know, that's how I practice. I'm always, 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 always practicing and performing right place, right time. So you don't look like a nuisance and uh, it's got to fit the situation. And when it is suitable, you get lots of rehearsal time to learn what to do and more importantly, what not to do. So hurry up and hurry up and get caught. Don't try, but hurry up and be bad and get it out of the way because you're going to be bad. You're going to fail. And I love what Elon Musk says. Failure is an option. You're going to fail. What are you going to do with it? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've got lots of horror stories in terms of to start over. Lots of horror stories and magic overall. Any, any magician or professional magician who says he doesn't is a liar. Of course, you got horror stories. But as far <laughs> as pickpocket stories, if you do it with your tongue firmly planted in your cheek and a twinkle in your eye and you get caught, I've never once had a bad incident. Mm. So if you're so looking for something juicy, you're not going to get it. <laughs> Another way of asking the question is that you have like this character – how much bleed over is there between the character and who you are off stage? hundred percent the same. Some people really? say, oh, I've got a stage persona. Another person might say it's an intensification or an amplification of who I really am. Not me. It's literally 100% exactly the same. I like that. I, and by the way, that's one of the reasons I'm never nervous. I'm being me. How do you screw you up? that's a good point actually yeah that's very good if i if i had to memorize lines perfectly without any deviation yeah i might get nervous but i always know i've got the safety net of improv and i can um i can roll with the punches yeah you just you just don't want to you know i like i think of it like a wave from surfing you're never going to beat mother nature always roll with it Always uh, slide and glide into the moves the way you need. You, you, you do a cutback directly into the wave, guess who's going to lose? Have you always had that type of a mentality? 
Well, at my age now, it's I've been doing it so long, I don't remember not doing that. I, I, I can remember, though, being a chronic stutterer. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the type who went, you could, you know, it was it was sound like a machine gun, but it was more like a stammer where I couldn't get words out like. Right. And I just either chose not not to speak or increase my vocabulary. So I had lots of work around words or had to have a very specific script with magic. And that gave me something to say. And that's how I overcame that when I was probably 18. Mm -hmm. But even to this day, I will absolutely stammer if I don't have, you know, six other ways to say it. So mm. not only do people not notice it, I don't even notice it anymore. It's so fluid. So when you're scripting, do you create like alternate scripts? Or do you script? No, I tightly script very, very much. But uh, I can roll based on what the audience gives me. In fact, not only... Do I not only am I open and amenable to like a water coming down a mountain, it'll find its way, but I also create pathways where the audience does interject, not if they interject, I'll say something. I'll put them as a posi- in a position where they do interject and not in a um, not in a closed way, an open way. They're, they're open ended questions that encourage them to give me answers above and beyond just multiple choice. So when they do invariably interject, I can make it look like I'm improvising the moment. And you get far more credit now because now it's an interaction. It's a conversation. You're talking with them, not at them. And they clearly know the difference. I'd say 90 plus percent of the magicians sound like they're talking at the audience. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Oh, man. Yeah. For reals. You know what? One of the biggest compliments I ever got in the late 80s uh, there was a um, a reviewer did an interview on my work. And let me just say this part first, because I was a stutterer and because I wasn't uh, I didn't know how to perform. We didn't have videos back then. We only had books. So you had to interject your own way of doing something. So I'd read a Paul Harris book. When I finally saw Paul, I go, well, he's not doing his trick right. that's not the way I I created my head like a book versus a movie so um, I I wasn't sure exactly how to do it my improv wasn't very good and I remember my roommates at the time in 1982 said why don't you sound like this guy and I had taped Daryl doing a show in the Cleopatra room at the Magic Island 1982 and Daryl at that time sounded so spontaneous and fun and fresh and improv he flipped the script somewhere in the 90s and he became very stilted and contrived, not contrived, but just very, very scripted, stilted and scripted, very tight, tight, tight. Daryl and I had you know, long conversations about this and he lost his comfort level to be that spontaneous guy. And I was the other guy and I became more spontaneous. So we both transposed. And I remember my roommate saying, how come you don't talk like that guy? I said, what do you mean? He said, well. He sounds more conversational. You sound like Richard Burton on stage doing close-up. Wherefore art thou card? You know, <laughs> just, my voice was raised, I guess, and it was, it didn't sound, it's got to feel natural. Sometimes you use your diaphragm voice, sometimes you use your whisper voice, but you truly connect with the eye contact and uh, just feeling the moment. You got to really, really feel, the, you know who's brilliant to that better than anybody I've ever seen? is David Williamson. He's, he pitches a no-hitter 
every single time I see that guy perform, he's truly listening to the audience and feeling the moment. So with, I was going to say with Daryl, I was going to say something. Oh, so this reviewer said something in the late 80s showing that I might have learned my lesson about um, being more like Daryl at that time. The reviewer said that Greg skillfully blurs the lines of demarcation between his conversation and his presentation. So we don't know where he stops and where he starts. Mm. That was a brilliant compliment for me because yeah. I was never that guy. And that seemed to be, you know, the typification of that lesson. Like now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just racking my head around this because I mean I, I wish everybody could be like that. They could think like that, you know, that could Why make can't the everybody art just be better. like me? <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> you know what? I say this all the time when I have debates with people and we disagree. I said, look, if everybody agreed with me, it would be a boring world. Yeah. That's and there true, was huh? a, there was a great episode on a Twilight Zone. Uh, way back in like 62, 63, it was Orson Bean. And he was the actor Orson Bean. And he said, why can't everybody just be like me? And everybody was, and it drove himself, ins drove himself insane. <laughs> yeah, so I no, certainly would not so be able no, to handle that. Like <laughs> What'd you say? I certainly would not be able to handle that. Yeah. Get no, enough no. of myself being me. Exactly. <laughs> it, it's just hard being you, isn't it, Ren? <laughs> it just is. It's just a hard life. <laughs> How so a magician this, uh, is like uh, still not there, man. Maybe I'll put sorry, this. What was that? I was looking. I was trying to find uh, wearing black. I was trying to find. Oh. No, I'm not going to find it. That's okay. All right. What What else you got? What else you got? So, yeah. So th this is kind of radically shifting the conversation. But uh, it's something I kind of mentioned earlier, which is this idea of the honest liar. And it's uh, similar to the idea that the Amazing Randy had of a, or the honest con man, similar to the honest liar of the Amazing Randy. Uh, it's pretty paradoxical. I think Jamie in Swiss calls himself the honest liar. I just like the, I like the paradox and the ju uh, juxtaposition of a guy. Uh, my follow-up line is that I'm honest about my dishonesty. And I'm sure my job is to show you the right way to do wrong, which is the title of a Houdini book written in 1910. I love the title, The Right Way to Do Wrong. And he gave away all these carnival scams and stuff like that. And um, that's always attracted my attention, how deception works. In fact, I do a lecture in churches called Deception Detection. So I go around the country teaching people how not to be deceived by first deceiving them, showing how easy it is to be deceived. So do you think you actually can be honest about lying? Oh, well, of course. One's a modifier. You can't, you can't have two simultaneously competing views that coexist at the same time, same place, in the same way based on the first law of logic, but you can be honest about lying so you're confessing what you're you can that's that's what confessing the sin is you're honest about what you did wrong true what is uh, true uh true forgiveness comes from contrite repentance this is getting deep guys 
No, that's we that's love what it. this podcast is for. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm hearing pausing here. I didn't know if I if we're, if we're doing back and forth. Am I gonna go? Uh, <laughs> how deep am I going here? Systematic <laughs> theology? Go, uh, as do... deep as you want. Yeah, as deep as you want, man. Seriously, this is not a. We're, we're trying not to make it a typical podcast. That's what we're all about. Then I'll uh, I'll I'll take that in. I'll take that under advisement. Yeah. Uh, please, you're you're in a safe place right now. <laughs> this is going nowhere. Nobody listens to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> I'd laugh harder, but I'm still looking up. Wear black. Right. Wear black. I'm really excited for this. If if you get to find it, I really want to check this out. I remember enjoying it. I remember kind of laughing. Yeah. <laughs> So another way of asking that, I guess, is if you tell someone you're going to lie to them, is it really a lie anymore? If you tell them you're going to lie to them. Yeah, I'd still call it a lie. Well, what, what is a lie? It's the opposite of truth, right? Yeah. You know, he, here's, here's one particular problem. It's interesting you're bringing that up, coming down to um, ob- objective reality. So the postmodern thinking that you'll get from a lot of uh, college professors is that truth is relative, which is uh, a pretty obtuse, intellectually obtuse thing to say, because he didn't say that with relativity. He said that with absolutism. Mm. So it's funny because this is what we uh, we talked briefly about on the phone last week. Oh, did we? Yeah, we're getting into the truth. We're getting into the truth. So you can't say truth is relative. So um, Newton's law of motion, I mean, not Newton, Einstein's uh, theory of relativity can have a relativity to it, but not truth. Because if I said to you, do you believe in truth? And you said, no, I would say, do you believe that truthfully? And you end up falling on your own sword. You beat yourself up in an argument. I don't have to do it for you. If I said, do you believe in absolutes? There's no such thing as absolutes. Well, you just stare at them and see if they're intellectually honest enough or astute enough to catch that contradiction. So I like, will say I can uh, I can offer a little bit of a devil's advocate sure. uh, to that perspective. Um, this kind of comes from my, my personal philosophy that ties into magic, but it's this idea of relativistic, relativistic truth um, from a pragmatic sense in that in how truth operates for humans, it's relative. Um, and it kind of disregards the whole question of absolutism, truth at a, like a metaphysical level. Okay, I heard some bromides in there. What did you want to dig a little deeper on that? So uh, the idea is that like a, a truth for a human, it, there's no such thing as an absolute truth for human. And I, I know I'm kind of getting caught in your trap still, but um. Well, no, that's not my trap. That's that's. Uh, logic. There's four formal laws of logic. Right. I, I, I guess. So what I'm saying is like it's we're all kind of we're all stuck in our own heads, right? The, the only way we gather information about the world is through perception, and we know perception is flawed. So there's no way of knowing if there's a consistent truth between you or I. So from a pragmatic sense of like of how psychology would work, we would have relative truth. Well, that breaks down, though, when you say it with certainty. You said it with certitude. So how could it be? How is that relative if you say it with absolutism? You know, there's a great book by Francis Beckwith. 
He was the University of um, Las Vegas philosophy professor. And the book is called Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. And he gets his work from Francis, uh, Francis Schaeffer. And uh, this, I was going to get really deep into, um, you know, cut, cutting off the sore. I mean, uh, cutting off the branch that you're sitting on, but that's going to get real deep real fast. Um, the bottom line is there was one, there was a good story in the book. There's a great story where the typical sophomore will ask a question thinking that she's going to stump the professor and have him wriggling in the crushing grip of logic and reason. And she ends up, you know, hoisted on her own petard. But that's what college is all about. The, you know, free marketplace of ideas and open inquiry and taking chances. And uh, so what she learned real quick when she said to him, well, who are you to say? And he shot back, well, who are you to say? Who am I to say? <laughs> and if, again, if she's intellectually honest <clears throat> and astute enough, she's going to go, aha. That's very interesting. <clears throat> I should only hit that mute button before I cough. Sorry. Sorry, I just have a little COVID in my throat there. I'm good. <laughs> gotcha. But actually, it's COVID-18. I think you guys are safe. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't transfer over the internet? <laughs> it does. But, uh, just stand six feet back from your phone. Where I'm, okay. I'm, I'm wearing protection, just so you know. I've never heard a man say that in my life. Hopefully that's the last time <laughs> I ever hear that. So go get that book. You would love that book. Okay. It talks about uh, uh, the death of truth and uh, the culture, uh, culture as morality and uh, uh, relativism and the law and the tactics to refute relativism. And I think you might find it fascinating. What, uh, what's the title Which, of by it the way, relativism is the is the uh, bastard stepchild of political correctness, which basically means what's the word? Oh, shut up. <laughs> PC means um, silence and censorship. I talk, you don't. My my views are valid, yours are not. Yeah. And interestingly, all of this stuff is what promotes and informs my magic presentations to make them far more meaningful above and beyond. Pick a card. Is that your card? <laughs> How much more interesting is it to talk about something that's like a miniature TED talk where you have eye contact, you have people's interest that are on the edge of their seat without the magic. And then the magic exemplifies your points to, to uh, drive it home with punctuation and exclamation. That to me is far more interesting, as long as it doesn't feel contrived. <clears throat> you could talk about the law of probability and outcome with odds and statistics, and then you do something that has to do with Las Vegas. As long as you follow it up to something that's fun and funny and interesting, and you're not dry and didactic and pedagogical, and you've got uh, patches on your, uh, you got leather patches on your. Uh, your tweed sports jacket like a like a geeky college professor which by the way that can be funny too all yeah. things are open see there's a, there was a guy on fool us who was uh -huh. so brilliant so brilliantly funny because he knew who he was i don't remember his name gosh darn it 
But somebody, the, the hostess of the show, asked him a question about being awkward. He goes, oh, no, I'm holding back. He was like really awkward. I wish I remember who it was. He goes, oh, no, no, this is not awkward. I've been holding back. Is that Kyle Esch? That's uh, it. That's oh, him. yeah. I, I love that guy. When I, I saw him. Guy. Yes, yes. Yeah, he was he was fun. He was funny. His actions matched his words. It wasn't contrived doing mother-in-law jokes with card tricks. Yeah. Everything seemed to fit. He knew who he was. Know yep. thyself. Yep. Yeah, right away I messaged him on Facebook. I'm like, hey, man, I'm such a big fan, man. I, I, I can care less about the magic. I just liked him as a person, you know. It's like I, he was just cracking me up. Oh, man. See, I'm an English major, to, and I try not to correct people, but I'm just – just this once. Just this once. Give me a freebie here. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I couldn't care less. Yes. There you go. Yes. Thank you. Cool. Okay. I'm done. That's it. That Thank was my you. mulligan. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've got a friend who always tells me the difference between less and fewer. I screw it up all the time, and I'm like, oh, how do I continually forget this? <laughs> So, so you're, uh, you're touching on a, another thing that we wanted to talk about, which is making magic meaningful. Um, sure. And I think that's what I, my initial email was about. And how, how do we do it? It's, it's a difficult task. It's really not that hard. Really? No. All you have to do is think one simple maxim. Magic is secondary. Magic takes a back seat. What you say before the trick is always more important than the trick itself. The trick will be the driver. The trick will get the exclamation mark at the end, but that just helps to drive your point home. Here's an example. I've been doing a twisting the aces routine since forever, and I do it exactly the way the professor described it in Inner Secrets. Haven't changed a single move. No innovation necessary. What I changed was what I did, what I brought to the bank was to reframe the presentation. In fact, that's not actually accurate because there, there wasn't a presentation. It was do what you want with it. So what do most magicians do with it? They do what I call narration pattern. It's magic for the blind, magic mm -hmm. on the radio. They tell exactly what they're doing, like to the point where, why do I need to be here? <laughs> the audience, I mean, like, What's the point of saying, look, I take a card, I put the card in the deck, I square up the cards, I shuffle the cards, I cut the cards, I wave, I snap, I blow, I turn over the top card, and there's your card, inhale, exhale, blink, blink, blink. <laughs> Stop the narration. Instead of saying your hand's empty, maybe say, and it, and, and it, uh, I can't find it to save my life. It slips between my fingers. I can't, I, you know, uh, where it, and where it is, it's anybody's guess. You don't have to say exactly what you're doing. It makes it far more interesting. So when it comes to twisting the aces, I made it about misdirection. So I say in the beginning, watch exactly what I do. I'm going to tell you what I do before I do it. So there's no element of surprise. I'm going to turn that card over. So it looks like I'm contradicting my point when I say I'm going to turn the card over. But it really doesn't because it just sets it up. So you do the triple lift, turn it over, show the ace of spades. Now you get it all set up. So two cards are now face up. Two cards are face down. You say instead of waving, 
or snapping or blowing, which is really weird to me because you're asking the audience to uh, suspend their disbelief and play along with your little uh, 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 romper room Sesame Street um, fantasy land. Mm-hmm. It's like, sure, did the snap really make it happen? Would the world's <laughs> most interesting man say the snap made it happen? <laughs> Would Chuck Norris say the snap made it happen? No, he he looked at the deck and it jumped to the top out of fear and intimidation. Right. <laughs> it's not the wave. It's not the snap. It's not the blow. So when I turn over each ace, I base it on misdirection. There. Gotcha. You looked right at me. That's how he did it. Look, the diamond has turned over. And see, the whole thing is when I explain, see how I'm pointing right now and you're looking at me when I point, why would you not look at my hand? Of course, you can look at my hand, which is how I turn the ace of diamonds back over. And the ace of clubs is now over. They're like, what? I say, listen, it's all about you being socially polite. You're going to look right there. You just did it. You looked me in the eyes. Or if I say, what's your name? Of course, you're going to look me in the eye. You're going to you're being socially polite. That's when I got the diamond, the turnover or whatever the next one was. And the last one, there's no way in the world. There's no force on earth is going to make you look away from the four cards that are all face down still. But watch for the last one. The last one was the ace of spades. What was the last one? And I look up at them. <laughs> oh, you guys are good. You didn't look at me. You guys are good. You guys <laughs> are good. Hey, what's that over there? Hey, don't stand there. Come on in. Oh, you guys are good. You're not looking away. So I have to use a different technique now. And there it is. I'm still looking at the deck so they don't look at me. And I said I had to wait for every one of you to blink at the exact same time. And now the ace of spades (laughs) turns over. And they kind of hate me at that point. (laughs) In a good way. And so there's no extra cards. It's, there's no great variations. There were probably 50 to 100 variations of twisting the aces in the 70s and the 80s. This is the original one. I just made it more meaningful by using a misdirection presentation. And it was super fun. It's super fun for each and every phase. And it builds. It doesn't flatline. And you can add anything you want to any trick that you want. Just make it interesting and meaningful. Like, for example, I have a trick called Foreign Affair where um, the bill, you're doing the $100 bill change, and the gimmick is made in such a way that every time you fold it, you see a different color in a different country. Mm. So you start with a $1 bill and you end up with a $100 bill, but you went to five or six countries to do that. So you're taking them like on a little trip, if you will. So instead of uh, being a geek and, you know, and saying, look, I'm now in this country. Uh, no, you're not. You're not physically there. You're metaphorically there. So do it with your tongue in your cheek and have some fun and be the most interesting guy in the room and start off with an an, an interesting emotional hook. Like uh, I'm going to show you how I traveled the entire world with just a dollar. It doesn't have to be a long winded prologue or preface. That's that was just enough to grab their attention to sustain their interest so you can go through the folds. So I start in America. And they see a $1 bill. I don't have to say $1 bill. And I fold it and I say, that's how I, I first I go to Australia. Then I go over to uh, Europe. Then I go over to China. Then I go to Brazil. When I come home, I end up making a little bit more money than how I started. Notice mm-hmm. there wasn't 
there wasn't any narration anywhere there except for a little metaphorical pattern. And then I hand out the $100 bill and I'm clean. And I just took them on a, an interesting little trip around the world with a strong emotional hook to grab their attention. So to make this question a little bit harder, what if you're a silent act? I think it's, I think it's trick dependent. Sometimes I start with a trick and create a presentation. Sometimes I start with a presentation or a subject matter and then create a trick around that. You know who's brilliant at this is um, Xavier Mortimer, mm. who, who's an act out of Vegas. Yeah. So um, we did a show together in South Carolina about five years ago. And sometimes as well, he starts with a trick, creates a presentation, starts with the presentation sometimes, ends up with the trick. So it really depends on your starting point and the trajectory reveals itself uh, each and every step along the way. Is there anything that you take for inspiration commonly? You know, it's not from watching other magicians. I try not to watch other magicians. I've seen maybe six, seven foolish episodes. I would rather take from, uh, from life, philosophy, psychology, sports, uh, finance, uh, religion, um, uh, politics. I have a whole show called Politrix where I invented about 35 tricks that explain my political proclivity that uh, will guarantee I'll never work in Hollywood again if it gets out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is so, there a specific process that you take? Like once taking, I don't know, say politics, you have a particular idea in politics that interests you. How do you go about turning that into a trick? Well, it's, it's actually fairly easy if you have a, uh, a broad knowledge of, um, of tricks and, and principles that are available to you. So I have one, I use a uh, torn and restored constitution. Nice. Without going through the whole process, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty fun journey along the way. So it kind of just pops into your head for you? Yeah, I mean, it, again, it could be a, um, it could be, was it the trick first? No, it had to be the presentation first and then the trick followed up. Yeah. So I would say, you know, from the beginning, uh, you know, from day one, oh my gosh, I'm going to be totally giving away which side I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I would say from the beginning, Obama said that he would fundamentally transform America into another direction. And that's exactly what he did. And now the, uh, the Constitution is ripped in half. Yeah. And then, you know, his job, his primary job uh, or the primary job of a president is to uphold and to defend the Constitution, which doesn't look very defended to me. Does it to you? Another rip. Thomas Jefferson said that the greatest danger in America um, uh, to uh, the greatest danger to Amer oh, American freedom is a government that ignores the Constitution. This looks pretty well ignored to me. And so I, I have like I had like four or five lines like this. And then, you know, the Second Amendment, um, you know, uh, they're trying to destroy. I, I forget what it all was. But uh, at the very end, I say the the goal or my purpose is to return to the way the original uh, 
founders intended this to be. Um, and then whoosh, it got restored. And the last line was for we, the people in the crowd uh, that I do it for goes crazy. Oh, that's beautiful, man. Seriously, that's that's really clever. So I haven't done it in oof, a little while now, so I don't remember exactly what it is, but you get the idea. Yeah. So so I, you know, I, I, I've got a million and one tricks uh, in my head, but I came up with about 35 of them that fit the politics. And it's so much more meaningful, especially when you start first. You just mm-hmm. start speaking on that particular subject. Make it interesting. doesn't have to be long-winded. Make it just bullet points. And then, again, the magic comes along, and it, uh, it's the color. It's like you're watching a black-and-white movie, and all of a sudden it gets colorized, and it comes to life mm. with the magic. So we, uh, we have about 10 minutes left or so in our conversation. There's one more topic I wanted to make sure that we touched on. Which sure. is you you create a lot of magic. Do you have a, a process that you go through to create magic? Uh, what are your inspirations, motivations, any of that? The only way I would put it is that you have to keep your mind completely open and play the what if game, I call it. What if I did this? What if I did that? What if I went here? What if I went there? If I'm brainstorming with my friends, we all know to suspend all judgment. There's no such thing as a bad idea. The idea is to put it on the table. So yes. an idea would be a playing card. Just put the card on the table. I can't play cards with you if you, if you hoard the cards and keep it in your, in your brain for fear that you're going to be judged. Got to put it on the table. It's like climbing a ladder, you know, um, and you're lifting something up. If there's two sides to a ladder and two people are lifting it up, one person can't go too far without you. You got to kind of do it together. And <laughs> you, it's just, I've got about uh, nine guys, which is like a baseball team. I know one guy's better at pitching, another guy's better at a shortstop, another guy's better at right field, another guy's better at catching. Everyone has the role, but I never put them together because it's always a disaster um, because too many I got. got there's maybe because there's egos involved and people need to be heard. And um, but when I work with them separately, zero egos, zero mm-hmm. egos. If I know to be quiet, the moment somebody starts to talk, I'm instantly silent because I already know what I'm going to say. I already know where I'm going to go. So it's very important that they say what they need to say, because if my ego needs to say my thing first, they might forget their idea. And it's happened before. So I might be a slow learner. But uh, I'm a permanent learner when it comes to that process. Learn to be quiet when someone else is speaking. Encourage them to say whatever comes to their mind, presentationally or methodologically. And it's just amazing, amazing how far you can go. So for me, for example, if I go as far as I can go, I think it's 100%. I'm tapped out. Then I go to a friend. He might add another 10 percent. Another friend adds adds another 10 percent and so forth and so on. And interestingly, I might only have been at a 50 to 75 percent growth, whereas in my head, I think I was I'm at 100 percent. That's why Vernon kept saying, stop. Don't stop thinking too soon. Don't stop thinking too soon. And I would just add to that by bringing in brainstorm friends who are like minded. 
And it's just amazing how far things have gone. And then credit assiduously, because what else do people get out of it besides credit? So I'm working on a trick right now that will be coming out called the perfect system. So instead of giving you too many details on that, I'll tell you, it's the simplest trick that you could ever imagine. Simplest thing that I've ever put together. Already, uh, seven or eight people have given me their two cents worth. Hmm. And it's gotten better, sometimes exponentially, sometimes incrementally, but you just got to talk. You just got to talk. You got to play the what if game. What if I did this? What if I did that? Got to just play. Got to just talk. Get it out of your system. No such thing as a stupid question or a stupid answer. So when do you know when it's time to take it to someone else? When I get to what I think is 100 percent, I'll go as far as I can on my own. I like what John Rockerbomber says uh, about what did he tell me? It was about. Oh, Hemingway. That's what uh, that's what it was. He says he doesn't finish a book. He abandons it. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. At some point, you got to just give up. A good friend of mine, I hate when people drop names, by the way. And I was just saying this to Jack Nicholson last night. I said, listen, <laughs> uh, a, a good friend of mine is Dean Koontz. He writes two books a year. Right. Two books a year consistently over the last like 15 or 20 years. And at some point, you just have to say good is good enough. Now, good can be the enemy of great if you stop thinking too soon. But at some point, you have to say it's got to be commercially viable to pay for that uh, um, uh, palatial estate he lives in mm-hmm. <laughs> overlooking the ocean in Newport Beach. That's that's not a home, not a house. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. So, yeah, he, he's one. He's he's learned how to mix art and commerce perfectly and brilliantly instead of saying I'm an art. I'm an artist. Let's put an E on the end of that. And one day, maybe someday, I'll get out there and show my work. (laughs) You know, when I first got into magic in 1978, I read a book by Lewis Ganson, The Art of Close-Up Magic. And he said, don't you dare go out there and do a show for the public unless and until you're ready. I made that was a huge mistake for me to take that advice because I didn't do a show for six years. Because guess what? One man's ready is another man's not. What yeah. does ready mean? Right. What does ready mean? I mean, the first show I did, I I was embarrassed at how stupidly easy it was because I had practiced for so long. I go, I could have done this five years ago. So that's why you get back to um, failure is an option. Hurry up and be bad and get it out of the way. You're going to be bad somewhere. Just don't be bad in front of your friends. Be, be bad in front of strangers in the beginning. Go to a watering hole you wouldn't normally um, attend. Do magic for total strangers in a mall, a bar, somewhere else. Then by the time you get to your friends, you've got it, uh, you've got it halfway down, which is why I came up with the term a thousand timer. So if you're at a convention and, you know, some someone wants to show you a trick, I'll stop and I say, is this something new? And they say, yes. I go, hey, I got a better idea. Show me something you've done a thousand times. I want to see something that they <laughs> do in their sleep where yeah. they own the trick. They could do twisting these as well, as well, just like Vernon. But if they've done it a thousand times, they're going to have touches on it that I'd be fascinated to see, which brings me to this point. I love these YouTube clips 
where they do things a thousand times and they're innocuous actions that I never want to get good at. Like the guy who, like the woman who counts money. You've seen the Asian lady who counts money? Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are, are you cool. flipping kidding me? Yeah. And Anne, not only she's fast, she's more accurate. Yeah. It's like absolutely stunningly fascinating to watch. So the guy who cuts watermelon. I just saw that recently too. <laughs> Which one? The baboom or the cha 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 or the <laughs> uh both, 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 both. <laughs> yeah, they're just I, I, there's a certain subject. I don't know what you put it in into this uh thing the kids are calling the YouTube. Yeah. On the uh, what do you what do you call it? The the interweb? Mm-hmm. Internets. Inter- yeah. That's it. The internet. I yeah. give it six months, by the way. I think it's just a fad. So you better hurry up and start watching. <laughs> <laughs> I know this because I just got a message on MySpace in case you're wondering. <laughs> and it told me to hurry up and pay my blockbuster bill before uh, before they come down hard on me. Did you have a MySpace, by the way? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm barely looking at this uh, this face face thing uh my face my face it's my my, face oh dude see see what happens (laughs) if you just try you just talk you play the what if game that's Uh going directly into my show but by the way i'll tell i'll tell you something funny if you do a joke if you do if you put on three or more funny things nobody's that quick nobody's that funny so mm-hmm. people know you're doing material now. So you got to be careful with your friends not to get caught doing material. So mm-hmm. maybe you do one line, maybe you do two. But if you do three, here's exactly what happened when Jerry Seinfeld was interviewing Sarah Silverman on that uh, brilliant show he does on the interweb mm-hmm. um, with the coffee conversation, cars thing. You know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Netflix. Yeah, yeah. That's a yeah. great show. It's so good. So good. Yeah. So he's, in- he's interviewing her and he tries a joke out. And it makes her laugh. He tries another joke right after that makes her laugh. He made the mistake of doing a third one. And she goes, Jerry, are you doing material on me? And he goes, mm. all right, you got me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when I do my whole, I'm the old guy caught uh, in, the, in time and I don't understand technology. So the first one's internet. The kids call it YouTube. What else did I say? Uh, um, MySpace blockbuster video. Yeah. You just gave me a great one. <laughs> and I talked so gosh darn long, I forgot what it was. The my, Oh, MyFace. MyFace, yeah. That's so good. So here's how I end that trick. I say, um, I talk about my pager. I just got a message on my pager, so I might have to go find a phone booth in the middle of this trick. So don't be uh, alarmed. <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if, if I quit too early. So I borrow a ring. I do my ringleader routine with a, you know, a velvet rope and their borrowed ring and it's gone. And I just then I, I, I turn my head to the side and I go, beep, beep, beep. what was that? I turn my head to the side again. Beep, beep, beep. That's my pager. I can't believe I've been waiting 15 years for this call. <laughs> and I pull my jacket aside. You see a pager. I take it off. I give it a little shake and I go, that's the sound of my new ringtone, if you see where this is going. Ah, <laughs> brilliant. Wow. I pop it open. I hit the lever, pop it open. 
have them extend their hand. I dump their ring out. And it's this satisfying full circle theatrical finish because I started with all this weird technology stuff. They weren't sure where I was going. And like I said, say something interesting. And with the magic, one drives the other point home and you've got uh, you got a happy ending. Man, I can't wait till the day comes no, when I get to it. work happy with you. Ending. We're done. How do you top that? <laughs> All right. Well, we are at an hour, so uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time, Greg. Uh, Before we go, where can people find you? Uh, What are you working on? And then also, do you have any book recommendations? Well, thesecretsource.com or gregorywilson.com. What am I working on? Um, Look for look for a cork trick that I call cork screwed. Look for uh, a trick that has to do with a system uh, for Vegas, a gambling system, a six-part inner secret, the six inner secrets to gambling. You know, I'll give you some of the jokes now because uh, okay. you, won't, you, you won't know what the trick is. So I say, listen, I've got a system. It's the perfect system to beat Las Vegas, to take down Las Vegas. And I know it's the perfect system because it says so right here. And I turn over a small pay envelope. And it says the perfect system. And uh, and you know it's real, by the way, because I bought it from a guy right out in front of a casino, a top casino in Las Vegas. Okay, it was more like on a street corner, but that's not important. What's important is that the advice is perfectly sound. And you want to learn how to uh, beat Las Vegas, and you open it up, and the first one says, don't play. And hmm. uh, in fact, you know what? Let me just go instead of. Let me just go there. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, I just go by memory then. So the next one is you want to learn how to beat lots of, uh, to win in Las Vegas. The next card says play in Reno. Mm. And another one is uh, how do you, you guys probably know this one. This is a classic. How do you, uh, how do you walk out of a casino with $1 million? How? Walk in with $2 million. Ah, and then there's other ones. Top of my head was it how to win at any casino, own the casino, and my favorite technique for winning at any casino anywhere in the world. Uh, cheating, I don't recommend it, but I'm just putting that on the table. In fact, any table, blackjack, craps, roulette, you get the idea. And mm-hmm. the last one is luck. That's mm-hmm. my system. Luck. Just be lucky. Millions of people all over the world use my lucky system, and I'm going to put you guys to the test right now. And that's where the trick goes. I'm not going to tell you what that is yeah. just yet. Okay. I'm so look forward. for that. Uh, look for the cork trick. Look for um, a thing with um, credit cards and books I recommend. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'll give you books uh, in magic and out of magic. So the first Perfect. one, I don't know why this comes in my mind, but Magic for Dummies is a really good book with great contributions from top magicians all over the world. They're not just like any of the dummies books. They're not for dummies. They're very well researched. Very Yeah. Yeah. It has McBride on there, right? Is that the one? In Magic for Dummies? Yeah, I think that's what it was. Or is that the Tom Ogden? Is that Tom Tom Ogden's the uh, stupid one? Oh, okay. Gotcha. Okay. What's that title? The stupid one. I, I don't, I don't remember. Let's see, Tom Ogden, stupid. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, it's been a I, while. It's 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 the alternative or competition to the dummies one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, there's some great magicians in there. Oh, the complete idiots guide. Okay, yeah. Um, I haven't read that one yet, but Tom's a uh, a thoughtful uh, a thoughtful guy, so that could be good as well. Stars of Magic. Yeah. One of the top ones I recommend all the time. Uh, Henry Hayes book, the Amateur Magician's Handbook. Um, I got started on Now You See It, Now You Don't. Um, Harry Lorraine's books are all fantastic. Paul Harris's books are all brilliant. Yeah. Anything by Marlo and Vernon. Marlo and Vernon are very good with routines, but mostly slights. I got hooked on Paul Harris because he was off the wall, off the beaten track. Me too. That's how I first started. Um, my first book by him was um, Super Magic. Mm. Completely transformed me. Yeah. I mean, just just brilliant stuff. Las Vegas Close Up was great. Close Up Entertainer. The Magic of Paul Harris. Um, yeah, lots of, of lots of great books. Art of Astonishment. And, uh, the Art of Astonishment. Mm. Uh, those are a compilation of a lot of those earlier titles, plus. Uh, plus new ideas by new magicians. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, outside of magic, I'd go get a thing called relativism, feet firmly planted in midair. <laughs> that was supposed to be a callback. <laughs> that was supposed to be a, a funnier callback. <laughs> that was all funny in my head. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we can't end on this note. Come on. We got to end on a highlight. <laughs> <laughs> take it away man I'll, I'll let you do it you're the guest <laughs> that was it that's all i got okay <laughs> we're apparently ending on a low light ladies and gentlemen here, uh, you know, i'll, I'll try one here, then and hopefully it'll i got a highlight for you all right okay great don't just watch but study david williamson okay he knows how to listen he knows how to feel the moment. I've never seen him not do that. I've never seen him fail. I've never seen him forget bombing. He's way beyond bombing. I've just yeah. never seen him fail to really attune himself to the uh, biorhythms of, of the, that particular audience. Yeah. Uh, close up, stand up, stage, fism, everywhere I've seen him, he just seems to nail it because he's listening to the ebb and flow of the audience he's going to and fro back and forth he's giving them exactly what they need and vice versa i'm yeah, sounding a little metaphysical and new agey but he's just uh he's he's a guy to watch and study no i think that's important i, I think that's great actually thank you yes sir all right you guys this was a blast yes. yes thank you for coming on we really appreciate your time Yes. So again, it's just it's just you three guys, right? This is not going anywhere else. <laughs> uh, I don't know. We might get lucky with this one. I mean, yeah, we might. That, so. <laughs> we might. Yeah. Well, fun stuff. Great questions. Hopefully, I give you a little food for thought, something to think about. Yeah, definitely. Yes, it's been and a pleasure. Likewise. Good stuff. Take care, guys. All right. Thank you. you. Too. Okay. You cheers. Too. All right, everyone. This has been the Spengali podcast. I've been Ren X. And I'm Javier Montalongo. And we will see you all next time. <laughs>